0: Now, um, obviously, I do want to—I do want to clear something up, real quick. Um, that was not historically accurate. <laughs> just in case. I don't know how good everybody's biblical literacy is. Uh, that's, uh, there was a lot of that that's not in the Bible. A lot of it focused on uh, the wise men's journey. That was kind of the title of the play this year, uh, was the wise men's journey. And um, and it's some just kind of imagination of going, what what was that like? How did they decide to go? And, and what what happened to them on the way? Because it does appear they traveled a long way. We don't know exactly how long they traveled. Some Bible scholars estimate like up 900 miles um, on foot, you know, maybe at best riding some kind of a animal, a donkey or a camel or something like that. We don't know for sure. Um, but what was that like for them to find, to go to search for this newborn king that was, a, according to some foreign prophecies that they read, not even their own prophecies um, that they kind of discovered this. Um, And and what we'll see and what I think we all know inherently is that a difficult journey is worth it if the end result is something great, right? It's okay to go through difficulty and have struggle and and all the kind of opposition they must have faced um, if the end result is something great. So we're going to consider um, the wise men's journey today, as we consider in our Christmas series, the wonder of his joy, and I'm going to read the biblical account now, so we kind of can hear what the Bible has to say about this. Um, incident, because there's a lot that our culture has kind of filled in the gaps on, for one, being like you've heard the song "We Three Kings." Don't make me sing it, <laughs> right? You've heard it, right? We three kings of Orient are you know, et cetera. I don't need to sing more, right? Okay. So they weren't kings. They weren't kings, right? The, the Bible word we use is magi. They were probably stargazers, actually, like kind of into astrology and studying the stars. They were probably good at mathematics and all these other things. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that says there were three of them, right? You might have been, you know, somebody like, hey, I knew it wasn't historically accurate because you had five wise men, right? And my nativity set has only three. But, but the, the three wise men thing is only because there's three gifts and everyone assumes that everyone brought one gift. But we don't know that for sure. It's just those are the gifts they brought. The Bible does not tell us, as we'll see here, how many of them there were. So let's read this real quick. Matthew chapter tw- uh, 2. They'd hold him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen, and when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So another thing we see in this, if we really read the biblical account of what does it say about the wise men, um, it, it tells us that they, they came to a house. So Jesus is no longer in the, in the stable, in the manger. He's living in a house now with his mother Mary. And, and they say they saw the child Jesus. Because again, he was probably around two years old by the time they came. So all of your nativity sets that have, you know, shepherds and wise men there together, they're no good. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't go together. Uh, they're, they're, they weren't there at the same time. But we see here that they do find joy in finding Jesus. The text actually tells us they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He really wanted to emphasize, to consider how how Matthew is emphasizing just how excited they were. They rejoiced exceedingly. That's not enough. He said like just rejoiced. That's not enough. We have to say they rejoiced exceedingly. That's still not enough. They did it with great joy, right? That's a lot of joy going on there that they're they're experiencing. And the simple truth we see here is that Jesus brings joy. The angel said as much when he announced the news to the shepherds where he says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's why we sing carols like joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's what the wise men experienced when they finally found Jesus. And it's what we experience today. Jesus himself as an adult, explain this in a parable in Matthew chapter 13, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We see that even after Jesus' ministry, after his death and resurrection, that the, the apostles find this same truth. The apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, where he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We also see that joy is not hollow. The joy we found in Jesus is not hollow. There's a lot that is made about, um, at least in, uh, in, in Christian circles, about the difference between happiness, and joy, right? You'll get happiness and joy. And I think a lot of that semantics sometimes. Sometimes we're referring to the same things when we use those words. But if we wanted to kind of differentiate them, we might say that happiness is kind of the brief, uh, temporary, current thing that we're experiencing, right? We might be happy for a moment. That's why we say things like, I'm so happy right now right? That it's something that is kind of passing where joy is much more lasting. It's stable. It'll stay with us. It's a more constant state that we experience versus happiness, which happens in the moment that we're experiencing something that, we're, that we like. You kind of have the difference between good nutrition and a sugar rush, right? You know, the difference between like when you eat a a, a good breakfast with like protein, like eggs or something like that, like you have a good breakfast versus you stop at the donut shop on the way to work. You know how you feel like a couple hours later, right? That's kind of the difference. It's that sustained energy. That's that kind of joy feeling, whereas happiness is that brief sugar rush that we might experience, There's unmatchable joy in finding Jesus. All human beings are searching for something. We're all are searching to fill something in our lives. There's an emptiness inside of us that we want to fill with something. And so we see people try to fill it with all kinds of different things. People try to fill it with work. Like, hey, if I just get really good at my job, if I can succeed at my job, if I can be doing something, that will kind of numb that emptiness in me. Sometimes it's family, even good things, right? Getting a lot of family around, having a family, focusing on our families, building our families up. Some people, it's wealth, just accumulating wealth. Can I fill, if I just have enough wealth, can I, can I fill that? Some people, it's possessions. Like, hey, if I just get the next thing that I want, if I can get that new car, if I can get that new phone, if I could get that new thing that will make me feel better. Some people, again, it's good things, doing good things. and people, it's charity and doing good things and helping people out. We try to fill that emptiness in us, but the truth is that none of it lasts until you find it in Jesus. Until you find Jesus, nothing will fill that hole that is in you that you constantly come back to, that no matter what you do, it doesn't quite fill up. Until you find Jesus, it will always be there. You might cover it temporarily. You might fill it temporarily, but eventually it will resurface. We also see that the wise men found joy, the joy of worshiping Jesus. The the, the text tells us that they, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshiped him, right? They kneel, they kneel, they kneel before him. And that's something that like we associate with with wise men, right? We associate kneeling with wise men because, again, of our nativity sets, right? Your nativity sets have at least one wise man kneeling, right? You probably have this. You probably got like, you got the one wise man on the knee, right? You got the one on two knees, right? And then you've got the, the one standing a little further back, right? But and his head is bowed, right? That look familiar? That's pretty good, right? That's kind of how we think we think of them that way. But the, the thing is, these wise men or magi, we might call them, they were trusted advisors to kings. That's what, that was their role. They, they were used to being in court. They were used to being around royalty. So they knew how to conduct themselves around a king. So even when they come to a peasant house, right? Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. They were not wealthy whatsoever. There's actually a scene we'll talk about in a future message where they they come to bring Jesus to the temple, and there's an option to pay a lower price if you were poor. And they choose that option. They go with that option because they were poor. They were poor. So these Magi, these wise men who are used to being in royal courts, used to advising kings and queens and, and all of the, the most powerful people in the world, they come to this simple house of a carpenter. They come and see this child who is, you know, not dressed in royal robes, in simple clothing, and they kneel before him because they recognize that he is the king. We can learn something from the reverence that they showed to Jesus. It's good for us to recognize that Jesus is our friend. Oftentimes we think of it in that way. We think of Jesus as our friend. We think of him as close to us. But we must never forget that he is worthy of our worship. We see this in Psalm chapter 145 where it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And of his greatness is unsearchable, one generation shall commend your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This is the God that we gather to celebrate at Christmas. He's an awesome God. No one can fathom his greatness. The psalm says that one generation commends your works to another, and worshiping is a key way we do that. Believing that God is worthy of our time says something to our children. We also know that the joy that comes from worshiping Jesus is found in the fact that we're declaring the truth of his deity, that we're acknowledging that there is something bigger and more important than us and our own problems. That's part of what I find when I come to worship is that I recognize that the God of the universe is worthy of my praise, that the God of the universe loves me and cares about me. And so everything else that I might be dealing with can kind of melt away all the other problems that I have, I have a bigger picture because I'm worshiping something bigger than myself. And that's why the Bible commands us to rejoice always. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. This is the same guy, the same letter where he said, I count everything as loss in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That knowing Jesus was worth everything counting everything else as worthless, and he tells us to rejoice always. But the thing that we forget sometimes when we read these scriptures is that when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, when he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, he was writing from a Roman prison cell. He was locked up for sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, telling people about Jesus. He got locked up by the Roman government in a Roman prison cell, and he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi from that prison cell and telling them to rejoice always. If anybody had a reason to complain, it was Paul, right? He's not experiencing a good time right now. He's locked up. He's in prison, but instead he worships and he encourages us to rejoice always. But Paul knew that there was power in worship. In Acts 16, we read this account. Another time that Paul and Silas were locked up, and another time they were in prison, that about midnight, Paul and another guy named Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is a story about real men in a real prison who are worshiping God, and God sends an earthquake to set them free. But I believe that there is power and joy-filled worship that helps to open our prison doors and chains today, our metaphorical prisons and chains. He sets us free from all that shackles us. When we take time to worship Him, we're not only overcome with joy, but we can be set free. Last, we'll see that the wise men find joy in giving to Jesus. It says, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We can consider like what, what caused these wise men to travel so far to find this new king? What was their motivation? Why did they want to do it? It's an interesting thing to ponder. We don't really know the answer, but whatever, what, for whatever reason they did it, they came with gifts, right? They came with gifts to offer him. And these were valuable gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And now this, this uh, I know the choice of gifts falls off pretty quick as far as we're concerned. And to the modern reader, we're like, oh, they brought gold. Oh, that's good. I mean, I'd, I'd take some gold, right? i take some gold right now. That's pretty good. And then like frankincense, and you're like, okay, Hopefully the third one is something I know what it is. Myrrh, nope. <laughs> I mean, you're out of luck. Like, it just falls off so quick after gold. You're like, I don't know what the other few things even are. Why would anyone, why would a baby want them? Have yeah, you ever heard of a toy? Like, maybe we could bring something else. But these gifts hold special, significant. Each of these gifts signifies something about who Jesus was. Gold is the most obvious. we recognize its value, but it also represented his kingship, right? It represented his royalty. Frankincense was an incense. Like that, that's a, a clue right there. you can see in it. Frank incense. You know what incense is, right? That's what it, it's a type of incense um, that was made, and it was used primarily in the temple worship. It was how, how in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews would worship. They used in frankincense in a lot of their sacrifices and in a lot of their things. They used frankincense. That scent, as it was burned, would associate, people would associate that with the temple, which means they associate it with the priests. Jesus came to be king. He was royal. That's the gold. He came to be our great high priest. He, that's the frankincense. And the myrrh is the, the most confusing one in terms of why you would give it to a baby. And it's kind of dark to give it to a baby because it, it was a, a, a balm that was used in burial. It was what they would, when they wrapped um, a person for burial, they would put this spice, this myrrh in the burial uh, uh, robes and things like that. So it was a it kind of take this aloe and mix it with myrrh and they would kind of put it on the dead bodies. So the myrrh represents Jesus' death, because he was born to die. He was born to die for our sin that we might live. That was the primary thing that he came to do for us. It's important to recognize, though, that the wise men were not obligated to give Jesus anything. They didn't have to give him anything. Even once they got there, even after they brought the gifts, they didn't have to give him a single thing. Right? They might have even been tempted to keep them. They, they come to an ordinary, like imagine you think like, oh, we've studied these scriptures. We've studied the stars. We think this means that the Messiah, the chosen king, the, the descendant of, of King David, this promised one has come. He's going to be in, uh, in Israel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We need to go and, and find him, we should bring gifts that are commensurate with who he is. They gather the gold, they gather the frankincense, they gather the myrrh, they travel this great distance and then they go, okay, where's the star going? Okay, oh, there it is. Oh, it seems to indicate this house. They go to the house and they're like, we kind of thought it would have been that palace, but it's this house. Knock on the door, people open the door, they're wearing peasant clothes, Mary and Joseph there. Did you have a baby born about two years ago? Yeah, we did. Yeah, he, we have a whole story about it. with shepherds and angels and it was crazy. You know, <laughs> can we come see him? They come in and, and then they're, they have these gifts, but again, they're theirs. No one expects them to give these very expensive things to this baby. And again, you, you might think they would be tempted to keep like, hey, pff, we don't have to give them all the gold, right? Because... They think a little bit as a lot, but they didn't. That was not their reaction. Again, they could have pulled back at any time, but it says that when they saw the child, they rejoiced. They fell down and worshiped him, and they gave him what they had to offer. They gave purely, 100% freely out of the joy that they have experienced. And that's the only way that we should give. We should give only out of the joy that we have experienced when we give to God. So the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 7, he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're reluctant to give to God, don't do it. If you feel compelled to give to God, don't do it. God wants a cheerful giver. He wants someone who recognizes what he has given us. That when we see and understand who Jesus was, that he was born, but that he was born to die, that he lived a perfect life, and that then he died on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin, to make a way for us to have peace with God, that what he offers us is forgiveness for all the wrong that we've done, for anything that we've done, and there's no one who hasn't done wrong. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That in order to find peace with God, we have to simply accept what He is offering us. And He's offering us free. You don't have to change your behavior. You don't have to change who you are. You come to Him. You accept it. You say, God, I'm not doing a great job running my life. I need, some, I need you to take over. I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. I want to accept the forgiveness that you've given, offered me. And then, only then, once we experience the joy of the peace and the hope that he has given us, do we give in return. We give in response to what God has done for us. We serve in response to what he has done for us, just as the wise men did. We'll wrap up with this three takeaways for today's message. I call this "How Should We Then Live?" Meaning, based on this scripture we've looked at, how should we change our lives? Because the Bible is meant to change us. So, number one, experience the joy of finding Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come to Him now. He's always ready for you. You don't have to fix something before you get there. You don't have to do anything before you come to Him. Just come to Him and give your life to Him. He will give you exceeding joy. Number two, allow your joy to thrive in worshiping Jesus. Find joy as you worship Jesus, as you come to him, as you lift his name in song, as you serve him, as you give to him. Find joy in that. And then lastly, give joyfully, serve joyfully in response to the joy that you have found in Jesus. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we're going to sing one closing song. After that song, there'll be a couple things available to you. One, we'll have a prayer team that'll be right here. If you would like prayer for anything, they would love to pray for you. If you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, they would love to talk to you about Jesus. If you are sick or ill, or you know someone who is, they'd love to pray for healing. Anything that you like prayer for, they would love to pray for you. They'll be right up over here. Um, And then, there are going to be refreshments out here on the patio. Um, you can go pick up your kids in the, in the classrooms and then come back and get a cookie and get some coffee and hang out for a little bit. Um, again, thank you all for being here. I'm going to pray and we'll sing that closing song. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is joy in worshiping you, that there is joy in finding you. God, may you give us a sense of that joy this Christmas season. God, that, that as, as there's so much craziness, so much busyness, so much else going on, that we would take the time to consider what it really means that you sent Jesus for us, that we could find joy in worshiping you, joy in finding you as our Savior and our Lord. God, I ask that you bless each person here today, this Christmas season pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.